This is The Straight Dope, Episode 10. False Confidence, False Competence, Nonverbal Communication. Like the last one, this comes from questions that I got through email. I gave out my email, chrisrway at gmail.com, and some listeners wanted more specific details regarding a couple of things. I jotted down some notes. And this is me winging out an answer. Hard times make it difficult to train. At least they make it difficult to train in a way that you tend to see on social media. Going to the range, shooting, going to competitions, hunting, you name it. It's very expensive to grab ammo and go do those things when you've got to go to work. Well, it turns out that most of the best shooters are getting by with very little shooting outside of competitions, and they're doing it in a couple of very specific ways. I think it's interesting because we're looking at a a hobby or or a pastime in which people are attaining certain levels of success, and they're doing it across a wide span of time invested and money invested, And I think it's fascinating when people do it for cheaper and faster. I'm not all that interested when a guy takes three years and $80,000, 30 to 40 competitions versus somebody that does it relatively quickly. And so I found some examples of some people that have done it very quickly and looked into some of the high performers and, 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 and found a few that invest a lot of time dry fire. Normally, when I hear somebody mention dry fire, I imagine you know running a bolt and clicking on a target. But that's not what these guys are doing. And so I'm going to back up before I get to the dry fire practice and say that there is a lot of media that is an amazing source of information. And what I call it is juicing the media. If you look on Instagram or Facebook, most of the time those are kind of curated videos that are very clean and very hard to juice. But there are some out there that are well worth watching. And one of the best sources, even if you don't compete, is the National Rifle League's archives of competition footage. Because what you're seeing are people stepping onto a course of fire with equipment that they may or may not have uh, had a chance to rehearse all that much and, and looking for their mistakes rather than looking to whether they actually impact or not, it's looking how they manipulate their gear and whether they do something that you would do or you wouldn't do. And if you have a little notepad handy and you watch that, you could write down notes. I would have shot with one bag. They used a rear tripod support. Try tripod rear support because it's not familiar. They put their hand on the scope. I put it alongside the bag. Try putting the hand on the scope to see how that works. They do X, Y, Z, and I don't do X, Y, Z, and you start to get a long list of things that they did that you were paying attention to. Those little minutiae, the more you pay attention to, can provide insight to something that you might need to work on. Now, you can go down a rabbit hole there and spend the rest of your life analyzing what people are doing that's different, but it does provide an amazing source of reaction under a clock. 
the reaction under a clock shows you what movements were practiced and what movements were not practiced simply by seeing the fluidity. Now, you might say that you're not a trained observer, but it doesn't take trained observers to be able to pinpoint that stuff out. If you look in journals of sports psychology, journals of psychology, oftentimes nonverbal communication is measured and used as a predictor for certain outcomes. And those are things that are ingrained in our genes. And so humans are really good at reading facial communication and nonverbal cues that give us insight to things. And so whether you are aware of it or not, you're picking up small nuances that somebody's doing and you're able to learn from that. So I, I would say get on those videos and start looking for things that they do that you don't do. And if you don't know what you do, write down the stage and the time and try to simulate it. Video yourself doing it, dry fire, and compare the times, the splits, the movement patterns, and the efficiency that you get through versus somebody. And they don't always show the best people. They show you know, whoever happened to be there when the camera was up. And I think that's really cool. Um, which leads me back to dry fire. If you can rebuild stages and go through those stages on various sized and variously arranged props, a couch, a table, a chair, a two by four, and change the height and the orientation of those so that you're developing the neuromuscular coordination to go through those patterns, that's where dry fire is really going to make huge gains. Um, Allison Zane is common for mentioning that she dry fires um, in between doing club matches on weekends and national matches, and she's got a ton of wins. And then in the last couple of days, Eric Cortina just put out a video that he, he recorded right after the AG Cup with Chad Heckler. I don't know either of them, but I've been tracking Eric Cortina because he's a well-known and well-regarded F-class shooter, and I like to follow people that shoot different disciplines. So among the F-class people, he's the one that I follow the closest, and then I've been following biathlon shooters and clay shooters, action pistol shooters. Um, but he tends to interview some people and he won, He interviewed Chad Heckler, who is, is the guy that won a competition called the AG Cup. And there were a few really cool takeaways from that. One, he seems like a pretty down-to-earth guy who's not embedded in the industry. And you tend not to see top shooters who aren't embedded in the industry. So he's a guy that just likes to shoot. And he said that he dry fires about 100 to 1 stage recreations. And so if at the level that he's performing in his particular discipline requires dry fire and stage recreation, you're not necessarily looking to perform like that, but what you're looking to do is find the motor patterns that you haven't practiced so that you could iron them out, and then wherever you are, especially hunting, especially law enforcement, especially anything where you get one chance and the consequences are worse than a blown entry fee. Practicing all those contingencies on the clock 
in recreations can become a vital part of your training and a huge learning tool that you can do for free. And I, I think that that um, stands out when you talk to good shooters, that they spend an unusual amount of time rebuilding and manipulating their equipment such that whenever a scenario presents itself, they've already done those movements on their own in many, many different ways such that their body can move in a fluid and controlled way between one position or another. They don't need to think, how's this going to work? Because they've already ironed that out. Some pointers for finding media that'll be effective. First of all, it's not going to be sexy stuff. It's not going to be overly edited. It's just going to be raw footage from competition or shooters training showing you kind of the whole picture of the stage from start to finish. You need to be able to see what they do right before it starts all the way through and then potentially kind of how they behave or pick up their equipment afterwards and then look to how you would do it and how you would do it differently and then recreate it. And that might sound like a big investment, but that investment is one that you've got to kind of provide on your own. And if you can't provide the time to dry fire and go through those motions to develop the skills that you need, it doesn't matter how much money is on the table because you're not going to do the work to begin with. So start doing these dry fire routines based off of the media that you look at. Now, the NRL, I think, is the best source. But if you want to see that guy, Chad Heckler, I didn't know who the hell he was. So after I Googled him a little bit, I wanted to see you know, if his style of shooting look different than other shooters that are performing. And there really aren't that many top shooters, right? Maybe 15, 20 guys that, you know, compete at that level. And there aren't that many that aren't kind of embedded in the industry. And so I was really curious to see, you know, what, what his style looked like. And he's got a YouTube channel called 5x5 Precision. And there's a few uh, videos of him shooting in Texas at the Leupold Steel Classic. And, um, you know, I would, I would recommend going there and watching that and then trying to repeat it. And, and a couple of things actually stood out. So um, you'll notice on some of those stages that he'll bring a tripod up for the first two shots. Most of these, you know, it's shoot two shots and then move and then shoot two shots and then move. And I thought it was curious that when he stepped up to these stages, he was he he mentions that he does this in the YouTube interview with Eric Cortina, but he tends to hold his rifle in the exact same way because that's how he practices it all the time, and then kind of in a robotic way steps up and gets onto these props, and so he's rehearsed this in his mind at his home, and it doesn't matter that he haven't he well I'm sure he's been to all these ranges, but you know that that stuff doesn't matter because it basically boils down to a particular height doing a particular technique and he'll walk up with a tripod, set it down, anchor the back of his rifle onto that tripod as a tripod rear support. And what that allows him to do is get a really good visualization of his impact. And then he has a good wind call. And then from there, he just picks up his rifle in his bag and continues on through those stages but that initial wing call is vital and you can tell that he is trying to perform his very best 
And to do that, you can tell that that's very important to him, right? He um, says in the video that he plans to hit, and so he doesn't go up to shoot. And he's like, well, if I miss, I'll make a correction. A few things stand out that I think you could take away and apply not only to your dry fire, but your live fire practice. And so I made a small list of pointers that he brings up in his interview that you should go watch because I think it's worthwhile, but it's our 20 minutes or something like that. First one is that he plans to hit, and so he looks to see his impact on the plate so that he can make his second shot at the center of the plate because that's going to give him his best wind call, and then he'll adjust as he changes targets or positions based on an impact that he then brought to center for his second impact. So that implies that he can shoot tight groups and he can see the impacts on the plate. But that's something that is a high level to be able to watch and control your rifle in a way that not only do you see your bullet hit the plate, but you know where it hit and you bring it to center for your second shot. And then you line that up with your window. So that's very important. Then he says that he practices for knowledge and confidence, right? He practices for rehearsal and that he rehearses everything. And um, I think that, uh, you know, those are my words, but but he, rehearsal, he rehearses everything. And he said that he does 100 to 1 dry fire practice. So these movements and these patterns are now much more embedded Right, he's starting to have myelinated nervous patterns. Those now they're, you know, he'd probably be easy to screw up if we change the style of shooting. But in this style of shooting, he's got motor patterns now that are starting to become very fast and tuned, so the energy can move away from how do I build this position, and be invested into only looking for that shot and where it hits on the plate. That's another important aspect to these dry fires is that you only have a certain amount of energy that you can invest. And if your nervous system is measuring and feeling things at a, at a higher level of conscious awareness, then it's very hard to pay attention to some of the finer details like watching your bullet impact the plate, looking for signs, visual cues for for wind change. And remember, those visual cues could be subconscious. And if your body's feeling awkward movements, it's it's not going to have the bandwidth to pay attention to that stuff. And the only way to provide it bandwidth is to make all of the other movements less expensive in terms of that attention um, pool or the attention bank that you have. Right, so hopefully, hopefully that makes sense. Um, it's a very specialized style, but I think that when you look to top performers like that, or you know, there's not a lot of footage of Nick Gadarzy. I think he's probably you know one of the very best shooters I've ever seen that I think would be able to shoot anywhere. But when you watch those guys move, it's very fluid and smooth, and that's one of the things that you can tell. Um, somebody who's an expert that's proficient at their craft has invested the time and energy into developing those motor patterns such that energy can be put into things 
that are only available to those people that are functioning at that higher level. And that takes time, right? It's time on task, the 10,000-hour rule. Um, there really are no shortcuts to a lot of that stuff, which is why I think that shooting now is still in its competitive infancy because I don't think a lot of people are functioning at a high enough level for it to be a really true competitive field. You know, there's 15 or 20 guys that are functioning at a high level. Everybody else just hasn't put in the time yet. But if people listen to this podcast and start applying these principles, I do think we can grow the body of shooters that are performing at a higher level and make some really interesting advancements in performance. By doing those repetitions and having the skill level and knowledge that you will hit a plate, you will make a correction, that's, that's a type of confidence that isn't false. That confidence is almost a neutral expression because you just know what you're going to do and you just go do it. And so in sports psychology papers, a lot of times it's expressed as, as a neutral emotion. That neutral emotion comes as a nonverbal communication skill of somebody with high levels of competence. And they're also described as being very confident in their craft, but that's not yelling and screaming and smiling and, and saying how great they are. It's expressed as a low level of arousal because they know exactly what they're going to do. What's interesting, or another element that's interesting here, is that humans are tuned in such that if you film high performers, you can often, from their pre-stage performance, predict the outcome of a stage based on those visual cues. Now, that, that might sound crazy, but recently I read a paper um, that was conducted on nonverbal communication by looking at video footage of professional dart throwers and a, a group of individuals like you and I looked at facial cues before they started their stage. And the participants were able to predict the high scores and the low scores simply from looking at those facial expressions. Now, they called it target sports, and I think that it's probably not far-fetched to say that shooting is, is in that regard a lot like dart throwing. But if a group of trained you know, or non-trained observers could spend time looking at these expressions and then subconsciously predict who was going to win and who wasn't, there's got to be something about the preparation that those people did prior to going to the dart competition such that it was expressed in their nervous system, right? I think that any of you listening could perform at the very highest level if you put in the reps and you put in this practice of dry fire and video review looking at the skills of a high-level shooter out of the juiceable footage, you can pick up on those nonverbal cues and start to practice them yourselves and learn some of the details without even having to have it said. 
I guarantee that can happen. It happens in rock climbing. It happens in dart playing. It happens in every single sport. And it's one of the reasons that we learn from watching so many videos. And we watch those things. And then we go perform them and review video. And your skill level will grow. And you will pick up on those cues that will provide you with an added advantage. The thing is, it requires time on task. And that time on task is something that most people are trying to skip. And there's really no shortcut. So you need to do it. But the shortcut, um, or not shortcut, but the key element here is that the people that wrote me said they can't afford to go shoot a ton of rounds of six, five or six or whatever the training caliber that they planned on shooting was. And, and here you don't have to do that. You can do everything about the mechanics outside of that. And the mechanics here are providing extra time to take those shots. So in fact, you're giving yourself more time to take a good shot by practicing the mechanics at a higher and higher level. That's something that you have to review on video and or get a coach, right? At world-class levels, it requires the eye of a coach, not the eye of the athlete, to be able to provide those tips. But shooting's nowhere near that right now. And um, in order to get there, we keep needing to practice and raise the bar on these video analysis reviews. That's true confidence, and that's true competence. And you can start to pick up on it by tuning in to these nonverbal communications, nonverbal behaviors that are occurring on these raw footages of high performers, and then you trying to replicate those at home. So I'm challenging you while we're doing the one-month challenge of deploy on the clock, shoot, and get off the, the stage. Build a dry fire routine that involves the entire stage and start to finish, you try to replicate what these other people are doing and, and try to pull out key and subtle things that are happening that you might apply in a test level basis to your shooting to see if that helps at all. So to make a short story long, that was um, some listeners' questions on how to make practice more affordable while trying to improve. And I'm pretty convinced that that is a good and simple way to do that. If you like this, share it, listen again, and um, do whatever to, to help grow the community of listeners. If you didn't like it, thanks for listening anyway. And maybe the next episode will resonate better. Thank you.